accelerating to a better future and insight into innovation at Imperial. Hello and welcome to another edition of Accelerating to a Better Future, the podcast that celebrates the work of the Accelerator Programme at Imperial College London, with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my co-host, Professor Richard Templer. Richard, hi, it's great to have another pair of your graduates on the programme today. Yeah, uh, it, it is, and, and it's a sort of follow-on to the theme of, of food in a low-carbon and climate-change-constrained world. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the um, many COVID cliches, if I can call them that, is that we've been told that everyone has got back into home cooking and shopping locally. But I'm not sure those habits have really affected our wider relationship with food and more importantly, food waste. I don't know about you, but my mother grew up during the war and she had firsthand experience of rationing. And she always used to say, waste not, want not. Um, But I certainly feel that maxim has not really been guiding our relationship to food and consumerism certainly during my lifetime, and, and the amounts of food that is wasted, you know, partly because we think it's off or because of the field to fork issue, is absolutely staggering. So it's really exciting that we're talking to the guests today who both tackled this issue of waste and packaging from slightly different perspectives, but I think in a hugely effective and, and very exciting way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they're both doing some, uh, well, of course, we wouldn't have taken them on the programme, would we? Of course not. They were fantastic and their ideas were fantastic. So, yeah, I I love them both to bits. (laughs) Absolutely. Our guest today, and thank you both for joining us, are Rodrigo Garcia Gonzalez, who's the co-founder of NOPLA. Rodrigo, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Great to see you here. And Zolvega Packsteiter, founder and director of Mimica Limited. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So I wonder if we could perhaps start with you, actually, Solvega, because you're really looking not at, at, at food as in terms of production, but very much in how we package it and then manage that packaging and how we prevent the waste in the food cycle, because this is obviously a huge area for, for the UK. I mean, we waste something like 1.9 million tonnes a year of food. Very often the food waste is in homes rather than in factories or in, in supermarkets. And I suspect a lot of that is because we're just not looking after it properly. We, you know, we're, we're following those best before dates, which we all know the best before date is a guide rather than an actual guarantee. So tell us a little bit about what you do and how you came to, to be doing it, really. Yes, thank you. So I'm actually going to open, uh, it's probably not the best way of making friends, by disagreeing with you, <laughs> uh, which uh, you actually said That's that good. the reason why we're wasting uh, so much is because we're not keeping our food very well. But actually... We are keeping our food uh, incredibly well, uh, much more informed about, you know, um, how temperature spoils food. And and I I think people can be quite um, particular about that as well. But unfortunately, the current system of protecting consumers with the dates um, has to operate at the kind of um, at the level of the person who's keeping it the worst, which is actually a very small percentage of, of people who aren't keeping um, their food um, stored properly at the right temperature. And so because it's impossible for food manufacturers and retailers to know which exact package is going to have that treatment, unfortunately, that's how we've ended up in the position of blanket applying um, the worst case scenario date, frankly, which is what... Um, uh, expiry dates are and um, you know most of us uh, who are keeping our food well are throwing away perfectly good food because 
we have blind faith uh, in the in the date and um, about 60% of the food that we're throwing away in the UK is still perfectly edible. So really we're being misled by those best before dates. You can say we are, you know, I don't want to jump in and say that, you know, they're completely evil because they are there to protect consumers, but it's a difficult position that food manufacturers are in, in terms of how do you set that date? Um, and, uh, and of course, they're always going to err on the side of keeping consumers safe. So um, what we want to do at Mimica is to um, help the food manufacturer safely extend that shelf life to the expected date and de-risk that by um, adding labels, which we call Mimic a Touch, um, that tell you exactly when that food spoils according to the real temperature conditions that that specific package has travelled through. Maybe you'd like to like to tell us um, how it is that the technology works. And also actually why you, why you made it, the sensory signal is actually one that you can touch. Yes, that's a, a, a good point. It is a tactile label so all you need to do is to kind of run your finger over it and if it's smooth it means that the food is still perfectly fresh and safe and only when you feel bumps um, that's when the food should no longer be consumed and um, the reason why it's tactile is because I'm a I come from a background of industrial design and um, I was really interested in an area of industrial design called inclusive design and that's the idea that if you make something easy enough for someone with a particular disability to use it, you make it even easier for people without that disability to use yeah. it. And so um, I was working on a project um, in my placement year. Um, at a, you know, it, it was uh, with a, uh, the Guide Dogs for the Blind Association project about public transportation. So I had a bunch of time on trains and buses talking to some fascinating participants in our study. And, uh, you know, you have some time to kill other than, you know, I've asked all my questions on the sheet, so <laughs> we're going to have a chat. So uh, uh, I ended up being incredibly nosy and asking about lots of different areas of, of um, blind people's lives and uh, learned some fascinating things. But one issue that everyone told me about was expiry dates and um, not having access to them kind of made them feel you know, it's a bit more risky to buy fresh foods. And so um, it encouraged them to basically buy kind of longer life processed foods, which unfortunately were having the expected negative health consequences. Um, you know, and I, I, that was backed up when I, I did the research behind it. So um, so that's why I decided to look at that. And uh, very quickly, uh, as often with inclusive design, I realized that we're all kind of blind to when our food really spoils, which is why we're wasting so much. And so in terms of how the technology works, uh, Richard, um, there's a unique gel chemistry that we've developed um, inside uh, Mimica Touch that um, we map and match the spoilage characteristics of to the target food product. So what that basically means is that we make the gel as temperature sensitive as that specific product. So then when it goes through the same temperature scenario, you know, from the um, being transported to the store and then into the home and then in and out of the fridge, it's reacting to those temperature conditions in the exact same way that that food does to, to give um, kind of superior levels of accuracy. I mean, it basically builds up a temperature history for the 
for the product that's inside the particular container that you've got. So it accumulates a record of you left that milk out for an awful long time before you remembered to put it back in the fridge versus you were very good. You took it out for only five seconds, put it back in the fridge. Yours is going to last a lot longer than the person who uh, left it out for half an hour because they just forgot. Precisely. So we're rewarding, um, you know, good food management with longer life and, and in a way hoping to educate uh, consumers who aren't exactly doing all the right things right now to help them manage their food better. And that's going to have to come along with some um, really uh, good um, kind of education and marketing from our side as well to, to help consumers do that. And um, uh, something that we're really excited to, to do the work towards. So how much are you working directly with the food producers? Because presumably that's really, really important because I should imagine a piece of meat as opposed to a pint of milk. They have completely different shelf lives and, and behaviours and, and can withstand lesser or greater degrees of difference in temperature. So, mm-hmm. so how important is it that you actually get right in at the beginning with the manufacturers themselves? Well, they're our customers. So without them, we don't have any customers. So um, they, uh, it's really, of course, the gel chemistry f- uh, to mimic a you know, milk is going to be different to gel chemistry that mimics steak because they experience different levels of temperature sensitivity. So the way that we, um, the lab does that is that we were actually guided by um by our customers the food producers so they actually um, give us the shelf life testing data and actually set their own parameters of of, you know inserting an extra kind of level of comfort Um, and then we we use those parameters to calibrate our gel to that specific what we call a spoilage profile Um, and so it's really kind of in their control and up to them where they set those parameters and so because there's lots of different markers of spoilage um, you know, there's obviously bacteria, there's color change, there's, um, you know, induces like sugars and how much sugar is developing. So we can take any of those markers and, um, you know, when it gets to a certain level of like, I don't know, color change <laughs> and we know what's happening in like, you know, how, what temperature has ha- had to happen for that to happen. And then we build that into the gel model basically. So um, it's a really sophisticated piece of work that we're doing um, at our labs. And, but it's really important to do that bit, uh, for that accuracy piece. How much do you think the consumers need educating? Because I think certain people, going back to my mother, she would probably have eaten things, you know, way after their best before date because she'd have opened the mm-hmm. packet and had a sniff and said, yes, this is fine. But mm-hmm. some people would be very concerned about perhaps colour change because very often you see meat in a supermarket that has actually changed mm-hmm. colour slightly, but it's well within its eat by date and it's probably absolutely fine to consume. So how much do we need to do to educate consumers who are on the receiving end of, 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 a, of a piece of information like yours, like a mimicker label? Uh, I think we need to do a lot of um, education. However, I'm not sure that pushing everyone towards, like, for example, sniffing is the right thing, because lots of research has shown that actually human uh, olfactory sensors are 
incredibly poor and very misleading so I absolutely wouldn't have recommended it I just happen to know that you know that's yeah. something that people of that generation who oh, who yes. went through rationing and, and privations were very reluctant to throw anything out and I think it's is, is it Nigel Slater who says we just treat the you know the way the, the fridge is a waiting room for the bin we put bits in there and eventually they just make it to the to the dustbin so so I'm sure that's not a method of testing but I do think there might be something about the looking at something and thinking oh that looks a bit off when perhaps it's probably fine and we might yes. find that a bit of a cognitive dissonance there yes definitely and I, I think um that that does need some better education around that because um meat is only bright red like literally it's just for a few hours after it's been um processed and uh, after that obviously naturally starts turning brown and that's just a normal part of it and for ages the food industry was doing all sorts to keep meat red because that's what consumers are expecting i think actually people would be quite not horrified but like you know i think people would be kind of surprised into like how much that was like seen as a big issue let's keep the meat red as possible i think they're moving away from that now because that's where um as there's an expectation for more natural products um but yeah i mean that it means that you are going to have to see the natural process of food changing even though it's still well within its limits so um i think that's something that's uh, campaigns like um love food hate waste uh, are doing really well but um that also needs to come from um you know passing that information on to um children either through schools or you know from parents etc Rodrigo, you're at the sort of other end of this, aren't you? So while, while obviously your concern is about um, packaging around food, it's it's very much less about checking to see if the food's okay. It's trying to get rid of the packaging in the first place, isn't it, with all the, all the plastic packaging? Because the stats around plastic are absolutely horrific, aren't they? Yeah, that's correct. So so yeah, I work for Notplat, that is a startup which mission is to make single-use plastic disappear as fast as possible. So we are focusing mostly on the other extreme of products, where there is a short shelf life, basically, and the packaging that packages those products have a really long shelf life. So basically, we are trying to tackle those those two extremes where there is a big mismatch between the the life spam of the product and the life spam of the packaging. What kind of products are you are you looking at? So we have been working. Uh, we have three lines of products at the moment. Um, the first product that we started the company with, we call it Oil. It's a membrane made out of seaweed that can contain liquids. And we call it all because people give it that name when they see it for the first time. They were going like, oh, what is this? It's a, yeah, a, yeah, it's a edible membrane. And we started with water and other type of liquids, mostly for uh, events. Those gatherings where there's a lot of plastic consumption in, in such a small uh, amount of time. And then we extended to other type of uh, liquids. We have done things with sauces, for example, ketchup or mayo for takeaway delivery. That again, is kind of like quite short time span. And another type of things for juices or even alcoholic shots. We have another line of produce now on coating. So basically coating uh, cellulose fiber for cardboard applications where plastic is used. Again, focusing mostly in applications that the the lifespan of the produce is quite short, so mostly takeaway delivery. And we uh, have another line of produce now that is on films. So basically making films for for products of different, not only food products, but, but as well, that can disappear fairly quickly. We are not really good at keeping things for a really long time. We're really good at making it disappear quickly. 
Rodrigo, you, I, I want you to say this thing because I can remember when you first came to persuade us you should come on the program. Um, it was either you or, or Pierre Yves, your your your, yeah. your colleague, uh, quoting at us um, the amount of water it would take to make the plastic bottle that sure. contained water. So you you tell that story, and I'll yeah. see if I can remember whether well, I remembered it correctly or not. Absolutely. So just to um, just to think a bit more about the problem itself, like on a plastic bottle. Um, a plastic bottle is a wonderful object, but like we use it quite quite wrongly. Um, we sometimes give it for granted that this object that it have a lot of facts behind it. So basically, to produce a plastic bottle of one liter, you need seven liters or more than seven liters of water to to just to produce. We drink per person, I think, an average of a hundred. Well not only water bottles, but 190 uh, bottles per year. And it's a number that increased almost like 10% every year. And not only in the developing world, but almost across uh, everywhere in the, in the world. Um, what else? Most of the cost of that object goes to the packaging. So like if you compare the cost of water or the cost uh, I don't know, of a carbonated drink, is negligible if you compare it with the cost of the packaging. So most than 90% of that cost when you're buying bottled water goes for the packaging. So it's it's quite a interesting object to to tackle and quite interesting industry as well that is quite established at the moment and, and making uh-huh. a lot of money. Well, what's been really interesting is because you are expert and probably because I'm sitting here looking at you as well. You've been very careful about defining single-use plastic as being the 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 the, the bad kind of use of, of, of plastic is something I kind of it, irritate isn't quite the w- right word but I always have to bite my tongue when people talk about the evils of plastic and from time to time I point out to them that you know plastic objects which are which are have a long lifetime are actually much less damaging um, in terms of the emissions it takes to make them than, than the, the equivalent glass receptacle um, and one of the things that I loved about about what you were doing, and um, was that a lot of people have been talking about you know the circular economy, and, and it's an incredibly powerful and interesting way of looking at our you know current very linear consumption. We make things, we use them, we throw them away, and that's very problematic. Um, but that you guys said, well, actually, for the use that we are replacing. It is like that. Don't expect people in, in, you know, in, in, at a rock concert to be sort of carefully conserving things and putting them back. So we've made something that is essentially biologically circular, right? Because the, well, maybe you should say, where, 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 where do you get, the, where's the original material from that you make these containers out of? Sure, absolutely. So, so yeah, we use seaweed, that is this amazing resource uh that the ocean produces and like plants of the of the sea it grows uh some of the seaweed that we use it grows up to two meters per day so it's the fastest organism on earth it doesn't use farmland doesn't compete with food crops you don't need water because obviously it's on the water you need fertilizers so it's, it's this amazing resource that as any kind of natural resource you know you need to know how to handle it responsibly and well and and yeah basically the idea is that that, that thing that you get back from nature, you can give it back to nature and it becomes nutrients. So 
it's a bit from the sea to the sea, if that makes sense, because most of, the, of our products end up in the sea in one way or another, either through, uh, if you eat them, uh, will end up in the sea through a, a loophole, or either <laughs> if you, you this, discard it uh, as, as well, uh, it will, will probably end up in the sea. So, so we are focusing a bit on, on, on that. Yeah, and exactly, Richard, what you were saying, we are not claiming that we have a solution for everything at the moment. We're just focusing mostly in short-time consumption at low volumes. So that's a bit our niche and, and where we think that we can make a bigger impact in terms of where plastic is misused, if that makes sense. So, um, can, can, can I, I, I maybe I'm going to want to ask Solvega so the similar question that you both to say. I mean, I, I know, Rodrigo, where, where, where your product has, has made appearances so maybe you could tell the listeners where your products have made appearances. And Solvega, I actually don't know where yours have made an appearance. So, so when Rodrigo's told us where his has made an appearance, can you tell us where yours have made an appearance or where they've been tested, maybe? Yeah. So in the first product, we thought we have been doing things like in the running events across a lot of different marathons. The biggest thing that we have done last year was the London Marathon where we provide every single runner with, with one of our products. And it was incredible to see the impact on that scale because you could see all the hydration stations that were using plastic completely full of waste after the race. And in our station, there was not, not waste at all, which was pretty, pretty nice. We have done things uh, in other sport events like Roland Garros, the tennis tournament uh, with Tropicana. We have been working with um, Hellman's, uh, this part of Unilever, and Just Eat, this delivery platform, to deliver over 50,000 sachets of ketchup and mayo, over 50 restaurants, over a certain period of time. That was really good. Again, with Just Eat, we have been working on boxes. So we have been uh, trying to replace their plastic boxes that we currently use to deliver curry and other um, yeah, wet products. With our, with our boxes, and that has been quite successful as well. And on the film side of things, we are a bit early on on the development, but we have done different trials with uh, pet food companies to deliver single-use uh, pre-packaged portion. So Amanda, maybe for your dog, could be a good one. <laughs> or, I'll try it out. He'll probably eat the packaging, actually. So, <laughs> Can I just ask, though, Rodrigo, and before we just come to Solvega, can you tell me, how do you get the seaweed from the yeah. seaweed to the to, to the packaging. I mean, what happened and, and why did you pick seaweed in the first place? What does seaweed got that you can use it to turn into packaging? Because I have not being a chemist, I have no concept of how that could possibly work. Sure. Yeah. So well, seaweed is a, a resource that we use quite a lot. So probably even if you without realizing you have been eating seaweed this morning, if you have a yogurt or you have a croissant. So it's used as a thickener in quite a lot of food industry. Probably your textile might have some seaweed uh, on the ink pigment. Uh, so the pharma as well is commonly used. So it's kind of like an abundant resource. It's an industry that was a bit on decline um, in the recent years with the synthetic polymers. And, and I think probably there is kind of like a big impulse now of like uh, people having farms and not only in Asia, but Asia had been the king of seaweed for, for many years. Most of the seaweed comes from comes from Asia. Having said that, we we only use local seaweeds. So that's something that we are quite proud of. We work mostly around the Atlantic coast. Uh, in UK, there's not so much of a industry of seaweed at the moment uh, in terms of like seaweed growing or harvesting. But we work mostly with uh, established industries in the north of France, 
the north of Spain, and sometimes it's Scandinavian seaweed as well. There is three main families of seaweed. So there is red seaweed, brown seaweed, and green seaweed, each of them with different properties. And it's a whole world, as you can imagine, it's like same plants. But we use, for example, brown seaweed to contain water. They're pretty good for that. We use red seaweed to make membranes that they are dissoluble and they are heat sealable. So each of, each of the seaweeds offer different polymers, different hydrocolloids that you can extract. So basically, you get the seaweed that even could be farmed or it could be harvested or will collected from the beaches. You have to clean it. So basically, you remove somehow the organic matter and you end up with fibers, basically, uh, like hydrocolloids. And on, on that, we process into packaging. So basically, we, we get that, that matter and, and we make either films or either co-extrude or either coat uh, a, a piece of cardboard with that. So that's normally the, the cycle. And so when you get your, your, your water as you're halfway around the marathon in a little sachet, do you just take it in and sort of suck it and it comes out or do you have to pull it apart or how does it actually work? Sure. So it really depends which product we are doing. Uh, most of the products in that context, we tend to do it bite size. So basically, you can put it all at once in your mouth, and it will explode in your mouth, and then you can swallow the the membrane if you want. Sometimes for marathons, we do it slightly bigger. So basically, it's not something that you can put all at once in your mouth. So basically, you nip and sip. Uh, the corner. So Baker's making great off-stage faces here. She's obviously had a, a nip and sip <laughs> while running. <laughs> uh, so, so basically, you 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 have it like that. Uh, I have here uh, one. If you one is hard to see, I suppose in a podcast, but like <laughs> all all at once, or you kind of like. In fact, in fact, would 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 you go? Oh, he's going to do it. He's doing it. He's oh. doing it. This is a live on-air demonstration. It's a little little he's clear pouch, <laughs> and you've just put it in, and you've just. Sort of swallowed it. I mean, that's incredible. I think yeah. before 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 uh, Rodrigo and Pierre even joined the, the program, they made a, a YouTube video, and it was it was a, a I don't know was it thirty nine million views or something <laughs> some ridiculously huge number, and people all around the world were trying to imitate um, what they were doing. So they showed how to make it. And the best thing about it, which I think is why Solvega is giving that look, was when you first put it in the mouth, everybody does this kind of like, oh my God, what just happened to me? Because it, it's not normal, is it, Solvega? It's a kind of, that's not how you're meant to drink. Yeah, it's a, definitely a very fun experience. And I think in uh, some of your events that you guys have run, uh, you've put some kind of harder liquids in there as well, which is also <laughs> a very fun way of doing a shot. <laughs> <laughs> It's true, but we shouldn't go there. I'm sure, I'm sure that young children will be listening. We should definitely not go there. So, Vega, tell us about where we might encounter a Mimica. I mean, am I likely to go down to my local well-known food supermarket and find one on the shelf? So, not yet. Uh, we uh, have been working really hard in the last few years. Like, nothing quite like this has ever been done before. So, it's, it's taken quite a lot of development for us to get to the stage of having a minimum viable product. Um, we were actually hoping to um, start doing the scale-up of the manufacturer and, and launching some products earlier on this year. That was the plan at the start of the year. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, by mid this year, have that done. But, um, you know, we're, uh, the main project that we're kind of doing at the moment is uh, we're working with the um, largest private label juice manufacturer. And this is a thing like 
Rodrigo has a bunch of like sexy company names to list, but we we deal with like private label manufacturers you've never heard of, but who make everything that you consume. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're, we're working with the largest juice uh, private label company in Europe, the company in Spain. And uh, they're really innovative, actually, for a um, for a food manufacturer. And they've been great partners of ours. And but unfortunately, because uh, juice consumption um, shot up as coronavirus came in because people are hoping to get their vitamin c in it was just really difficult to run um you know mess they they were just focused on delivering juice they didn't want to mess with their manufacturing lines and and set up our caps um so that's been delayed a bit uh we're now kind of moving towards kind of an early 2021 um scale up and launch um which is going um well and um some other um companies that we're working with uh, that's on the flat label because we've got two formats um, we've got the kind of flat label um, which is good for lots of different packaging it's basically like it's not quite as thin as a sticker but you know that's that kind of thing can pretty much go on everything and then we've got the cap format as well so it's actually built into the uh, bottle cap so for the flat label uh, which is good for you know meat cheese um, all sorts of fish, that kind of thing, where uh, I actually got funded to do an innovation project to scale up that flat label next year. And we've got some meat companies involved with uh, with that as well. Again, not, you know, all large, you know, faceless companies that you guys as consumers won't have heard of, but uh, they're really, you know, they're leaders in their in their fields and uh, we're delighted then, to work with them. Does that mean, Solvega, that they end up with somebody else's name on, you know, That's like... Right yeah okay but most often um it's supermarket brands at these large yeah, companies sure. so like um you know the That's juice expensive. and beef company that we're working with they'll supply all the major uk right. retailers so very by working with these guys as customers very quickly we'll kind of go into like the whole uk market and like beyond um which is our model we're also working with a couple of brands so like you know uh brands that make their own food products but unfortunately we're under dis- un- uh, disclosure agreement so i can't reveal uh, oh, any of i do have some sexy names <laughs> I we believe you we believe yet. you okay actually I, I i you sort of alluded a little bit to solvega the the you know the 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 pandemic and, and lockdown and all the things it's done to the economy obviously it has an effect on all business but i guess startups are a little bit different especially in the the phase that that mimicker and not are in would you mind just sort of telling us just i don't know some things that that have that have been hard or or or, or that you found a way of getting around i think people would probably be interested to know and then i'll i'll get rodrigo to do the same thing You, you get more chance to think about it rodrigo yeah, so I think as I just kind of was mentioning is that, you know, we had a plan and it was all going very well. And, uh, you know, we had a signed deal to, you know, launch with this uh, very large company and they're really motivated to, you know, give us everything we need to do that. And then, you know, uh, the um, pandemic comes in, everything gets shut down and really we're not able to manufacture anything. And so every month that we're, delaying revenue is another month that we have to pay people's salaries to work in the company we actually decided not to furlough anyone uh which um we have really uh, a really fantastic team and i 
didn't want anyone to feel disheartened that their role maybe is less valuable than anyone else's. And so we, we were thinking long term and uh, we really wanted to keep the team together because we, we have plenty to do in terms of future R&D. So we kind of used the time to work on some future projects. So kind of thinking about the, um, you know, the scale up of the flat label and um, some of us hung down and wrote a bunch of grant applications, which oh, okay. <laughs> thank God has paid off. Um, but, uh, you know, for a time there, it was, it was going to be kind of tricky and, and we were looking at maybe raising an extra investment round and we did raise a, a small amount to help us out and we took a loan um, as well from our bank and we got uh, loads of grant support in the end. So pulled through but uh and uh it's it has it was a really intense time in terms of um r&d and i'm really we've come out as a much stronger organization on the other side so i'm really pleased uh, I, I i think actually being challenged is quite so existentially as a as a small you know business as a medium-sized business is a real proof to yourself actually whether whether, whether you're going to make it or not if you can mm-hmm get through something like this, you probably stand a pretty good chance of getting through. I mean, you know, our, our parents, Amanda and my, and indeed Jim's uh, generation went through wars and that was a lot harder than this, but this is getting there. Rodrigo, how, how, how about how about not plow? How so you- for us, from a financial point of view, we were quite lucky enough that we closed a, a funding round just before the storm. So that had helped us quite a lot to be in a stable position in terms of uh, securing everyone's job and, and try to kind of like see that there was light uh, at the end of the tunnel. Uh, in terms of business, uh, most of the activity had been really slowed down or, or cancelled. We have a big intake on the on the events uh, business. So, for example, for the London Marathon of this year, we plan to do five times more quantity than what we did last year. We're supposed to do some uh, the, the New Year marathon in the States that, that was kind of like really exciting for us to try to see how we can manufacture from that and have, that had been cancelled or postponed. So there were a few kind of like uh, important uh, yeah, milestones that, that probably we cannot achieve this year. Having said that, we have been trying to, to keep moving as much as we could. We have seen as well a shift uh, in terms of what type of companies they are approaching us. Um, food, uh, as, as Solviga was saying, had been quite disrupted during these, mm-hmm. uh, these months. But for example, cosmetic businesses are kind of like coming really strong. And we have quite a lot of requests from, uh, all the type of unexpected somehow markets that we were, we were not considering before. I've not been using my cosmetics very, very, very much over the last couple of months, yeah. but hey, I think I. Same. <laughs> we're supposed to though aren't we you have these lectures about how we're supposed to dress up to go on zoom but you know yeah. forget it. <laughs> I mean, in, in fact I'd, I'd like to say <laughs> I, actually from from what you're saying you know that that, that that um i would say not only that you're you're surviving you're doing more than that you're you are moving your 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 technology forward and you're you're kind of you're you're you're, you're setting yourself up for when things get back to some kind of of normality the really interesting things i found in the last six months is it now since we started was this covid really really caused us to to close everything down and in that time um investment to um, the startups that were, that were in the accelerator has actually 
certainly not slowed down. And there's actually, I think there's evidence that this got stronger, that um, the reaction I had from, from some of the larger companies who are also wanting to invest in, 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 in new, new companies um, was that COVID was a wake-up call that mother nature wouldn't be stalled. You know, that this, you couldn't just choose your moment to when you might do something about climate change. That actually, you just had to get on with it. So far from being a, a kind of impediment to raising funds, it's almost seems to be in a spur. And I, I hope that that's true. Obviously, Rodrigo, you, you'd already raised money, so you didn't experience it. But other, other colleagues of yours have been raising phenomenal amounts of money. I mean, one of them comes to 50 million. So, you know, it's, it, these, these are meaningful by anybody's account, right? That's a meaningful amount of money. So I'm really pleased. And as far as I'm aware, not a single one of the companies that's graduated, that's like 64 of you, has folded. Not a single one of you. That's um, testament to your success as a program, oh, Richard, and I know you, you don't like me saying this, but it's true. And I think what's really fascinating about hearing these the stories from Rodrigo and Silvega is that you're coming up with practical, real-life, applicable commercial solutions to huge problems that, you know, lots of us in the voluntary sector or, or, or other campaigning sectors have been going on about for years and years and years, food waste, plastic waste. And here you are actually saying his, his technology and his science providing a solution to one of these intractable problems tractable problems that the climate is facing. So it's a huge testament to your skills and your abilities and your, I guess, inherent genius, really, for coming up with the ideas in the first place, but also to the programme for for seeing that that potential and fostering it. And I know, Silvega, you're a a serial accelerator programme user. Enthusiast. Yes. Yes, that's that's right. And if I I can just add, um, you know, a story about, you know, lockdown that I should have mentioned when you were asking, Richard, is that actually we've also learned how to become a lot more... um, like how to be more efficient with the resources we do have. So for example, we set up home labs because we didn't follow anyone and we have a lab team. We set up home labs for everyone to be able to do the experiments. And we we're like, yeah, well, you know, even if they are 40% efficient as they were before, it's still like, you know, makes sense to, to do that. And actually we found that they're able to do like 80 to 90% of what they were doing in the labs. And now we're thinking, why are we renting a lab full time? Um, so, you know, it's, it's opened up some really exciting uh, things for the future. And, and, you know, then we're not bound to one location where everyone has to come to the lab. Maybe we can recruit um, from all around the world, have the best minds on this who set up home labs at home. And I think I'm really excited about the future of working and the possibilities from that. And, you know, it's particularly in distributed R&D. I think there's a conversation to be had here. I, I think I think that's a wonderful thing that you just said, because Rodrigo has got a story to do with... Um, well, you weren't called Notplar at the time. You were just skipping Rocks Labs at the time, and the chemistry department and how he efficient, how they efficiently used students in the chemistry department. And and I think Amanda, this is this is something about startups. They can do things which big companies can't because they can think laterally and then act laterally where where big companies can't. I mean, having having teed Rodrigo up for the story, Rodrigo, over to you. No, yeah. So, so we went full on on, uh, on Climate Kick and the resources that Imperial could offer. And, and I think we parasite every single department of Imperial in different ways. Uh, with the chemistry department, we had a, a really good uh, collaboration over the years. 
So even I think this year, even with COVID, we we had the first year's students, that is over 140, I think, students working in some challenges that we face as a company. And I think it's a, a really nice uh, and honest somehow relationship where somehow we try to give some insights and some reality challenges that we face every day and then try to somehow come up with some ideas around those. So the, that had been really good. Then over the summer, sometimes we got six students from Imperial working with us, sometimes working from here, sometimes working from Imperial. So that had been really a really good pool as well of, of talent and, and resources. The, 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 when, when, when they were using the first, so the first year chemists would try all these different formulations. You know, you were asking how this how this stuff is made. So they would they would play around with it. They just explore and play around with it. And for the students, it was, you know, there, there you are. It's your first year, your first time in London, possibly. You know, all that kind of way you feel when you're doing your first thing ever. And then there's this, you're being plunged into, oh, this is startup. You know what they are? They're, they're wanting to make this thing. Would you like to help out? And the students actually just totally loved it. Um, and if, if, if anybody's doing anything with our first years this year, it's not 140, Rodrigo, it's 240, courtesy of Gavin Williamson's slight boo-boo with the A-levels. <laughs> and they may well all be in home labs if this carries on. Yeah. I think that's a really neat place for us to draw this conversation to a close because it just shows what a cyclical process this is and how how you know you come through the program and you run your businesses and then you feed back into the university and give those opportunities to young people and it, there's nothing like learning from somebody who's that step ahead of you so so thank you both very much for st- sharing your incredible stories um, to Solvega and to Rodrigo and they are great products and we really look forward to seeing the Mimica cap on a juice bottle in a supermarket near us soon. So thank you so much for being part of this podcast. And um, it's been fantastic to talk to you both. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks a lot for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. Um, You've been listening to Accelerating to a Better Future. You can catch other episodes of the podcast either on your favourite podcast app or by visiting the Grantham Institute website. Um, My thanks to my co-host, Richard, and to our producer, Jim. And tune in for another exciting episode soon. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Accelerating to a Better Future is a Planet Pod production, co-hosted by Amanda Carpenter and Richard Templer. Thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and the team at Imperial College London.